Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. Every business is in some way a people business. From Silicon Valley to the restaurant down the street, every business relies on groups of people working together toward a common cause. That's no easy task. While the world around us has evolved into a high-tech, interdependent matrix, our individual software is largely the same as it was 10,000 years ago. We are social, emotional animals balancing a need to fit in with a desire to stand out. This is a show that explores individual and interpersonal dynamics, helping you become your best self while making the most of your business and the people in it. If you enjoy this episode, make sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Enjoy the show. In this episode, I'm joined by Neem Gandhi, Chief Population Health Officer and Chief Financial Officer at Mount Sinai Health System. Mount Sinai Health System is the largest employer in the five boroughs of New York. And Neem has an interesting background that we get into here in this episode. He comes up through the population health side and has worked with their organization and with communities dealing with health and behavior change out in the community to improve the health of their populations. But now he's stepped into the chief financial officer role, a role he took on just before COVID hit and has had to change hats, so to speak. We get into that here in the episode and really look at his work through a different lens, advocate for different things within the organization. And he talks in here about how he wrestles with those different hats and how he thinks about the impact of financial decisions on the people within the organization. I'm really excited to have him on. I've been I've been looking to have a chief financial officer on to talk about the people side of the business. And Neam is an incredibly thoughtful business leader. So I think you're really going to enjoy it. Without further ado, here is Neam Gandhi. And we are live. Neam, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on. Thanks so much for having me, O'Brien. I am uh, I'm excited to dive into this because this is a show about people dynamics, and we've had on a number of CEOs and heads of HR coming in to talk about how they organize and mobilize and think about people. But I thought it would be just as important to have somebody on who runs the finance function of a business since so many decisions get run through the CFO's office and through finance that impact people. And so it's been on my radar since the beginning. And uh, lo and behold, right around that time, you wound up taking a CFO job and the stars aligned and and here we are. So we always have pretty interesting conversations. I'm looking forward to diving into this one and and really getting your perspective from the chair that you're sitting in. Yeah, likewise. See, I, I thought maybe you just wanted me on to be the cold, heartless CFO who uh, you know thinks about dollars and cents instead of people. Yeah, but, I've uh, got this should be fun. I've got a bunch of gotcha questions on here. Just wait for them; they'll they'll come. So, I guess before we dive in too much, uh, would be great if you could just start by giving like the high level overview of your organization. Sure. Uh, so. Mount Sinai Health System is uh, actually, from the people standpoint, we're the largest private employer in New York City uh, within the five boroughs. We have uh, about 42,000 employees across 
eight hospitals. Uh, we uh, own our own school of medicine, actually, a full degree granting school of medicine uh, that does a lot of medical research as well. About 350 community locations spread across the greater New York market, across New York City, Long Island, Westchester. Uh, we deliver care to about 3 million people in an average year, 3 million unique uh, New Yorkers and, and actually people from even further abroad than that. And through our various member entities that came together to be part of the Mount Sinai Health System over the past couple of decades have been serving the community for just over 200 years. Actually, our oldest institution celebrated its uh, bicentennial last August. Wow, that's incredible. And it'd be good too just to get your origin story, like your background, your career path to how you came to be sitting in the CFO seat. Sure. I So I'm actually quite, I'd say, non-traditional from a CFO standpoint. I spent the first part of my career as management consultant doing strategy work for health plans and health systems on typically on issues of long-term strategy, a lot of work around population health, value-based care, whatever kind of buzzword or buzz phrase was big in the industry. Uh, it's an industry that's obviously going through a lot of change and needs a lot of change. And so uh, we were doing a lot of uh, strategy work, working with executive teams of large healthcare organizations, helping them think about the future, how to serve their patients or members more effectively, how to you know compete in the future, changing financial models, changing clinical models, uh, those sorts of those sorts of issues. Uh, my last handful of years at Oliver Wyman, which was the firm that I was with, I was focused on, along with a, a set of my colleagues, we were really focused on this transformation to value-based care. The idea of moving to a model where as a provider organization, as a hospital system or a physician group, you're paid for the value of the services you deliver rather than just the number of services you deliver. Uh, you know, traditional healthcare is uh, what we call fee for service. Each, each widget you produce, you get paid. And that doesn't really line up with the idea of what patients actually need. Uh, if you think about it, you know, really crudely, actually in the traditional model, Providers would make more money if they delivered bad care. They would not take good care of you. You would need more services in the future as you got sicker and they'd make more money. Now, they don't do that intentionally, but it highlights the fact that the incentive model is supports a different type of care model. It supports sick care, not health care, uh, treating sick. And so the idea of moving to a clinical model that is more health-focused rather than you know, response to sickness-focused underpinning that with an appropriate financial model, and then building the operations so that you can actually deliver on a on a value promise to your, your customers, consumers, patients, uh, was the work that we were doing. And by no means, this is this novel. This is you know probably the biggest trend going on in healthcare right now. So I was doing that sort of work uh, with a lot of large delivery systems around the country, came to Mount Sinai to try to sell them a project failed in my efforts to do that uh, because the CEO called me uh, two days later and uh, offered me a job instead and uh, to basically operationally lead the, the population health group here at Mount Sinai. And so I uh, did that for the past five years, in inherited actually a couple of great functions uh, and then built the rest of the team around that uh, to develop the, the P&L for the organization that is focused on, on value-based care and uh, a lot of the clinical and operational programs to help us succeed in that that new type of model of healthcare. Uh, and then uh, earlier this year, or I guess last year, we're in January now, uh, <laughs> last year, 
the CEO mentioned to me that uh, this is one of my one-on-ones with him. He said, uh, "So uh, you have something on my agenda that probably isn't on your agenda." I was like, "Oh, that's interesting. Maybe ominous." Yeah, exactly. He uh, he said, "Well, so you know, Don Don is the name of my predecessor is the CFO." He said, "Don uh, said he wants to retire later this year," and I thought he was going to go down the path of, you know, who do you know from your consulting days. Our CEO doesn't actually really the people stuff. We may talk about it a little more later. Our CEO really does not like using search firms. Uh, he really strongly believes in finding executive leadership through connections of other executive leaders in the organization. And so I've helped him with other recruitments in the past. So has everybody else on the team. I came in through somebody else that you know knew me on the executive team. Uh, you know, so I'm racking my brain on who are the best CFOs I know out there and. Uh, not even really listening to him at that point. And then he says, so um, I'd like I'd like you to take over for him. It's like, oh, all right. Let's think about that uh, because CFO is never something I thought I would do. Uh, I'm not a finance guy, but our CEO is somebody who I would trust and follow into the fire. And so if it's what he needs from me and what the organization needs from me, I uh, figured I'd uh, jump in. And uh, it's been it's been a ride. I also you know, accepted the job four days before we diagnosed our first COVID patient. So I think I might have said yes to one job and gotten quite a different job here. Yeah, I imagine it's been quite a roller coaster since that that day. So you talked about you know most of your career being outside the finance function. How does that shape how you do the finance job? You know, I think one of the interesting things about the finance job is that uh, it is uh, it's really there to support operations. And there's a natural tension, I think, that, that needs to exist. It's good for the organization, uh, whereby operations uh, you know, is in charge of actually delivering the financial results. Finance is the scorekeeper to some extent. Finance places the financial controls by which operations makes its decisions. It's a really tight partnership. And in a healthcare organization, the third leg of the stool is, is clinical, right? Well, ultimately, we're here for our, our patients, and it's the it's the, the clinical work that, that matters the most. In my prior role, most of what I did was actually operations and clinical. And so it's in some ways, I'd like to think hopefully it gives me a, a, a better understanding of the operations we're trying to support. Uh, I think a little bit more like an operator. I think about, you know, how do we frame, how do we frame the numbers to support the operators rather than to support the auditors? Right? And then you got to support both of them, of course, but Oftentimes, there's this translation gap between finance and operations. And so I try to uh, think a little bit differently about it from that standpoint. Also, on the, on the people dynamics, you know, operations is where most of the people are employed. And so having managed a P&L, having thought about the dynamics uh, necessary to attract and retain talent when you're trying to deliver against a business priority, not that finance doesn't need to do that within their own function. But coming at it from the, the clinical and operational standpoint, I think gives me another lens. On the flip side, I would say a place where I, where because of my background, I struggle a bit is there are some times when I need to be the voice of uh, what I believe as a person, as Neam in the room. And there are some times where I have to wear the hat of the CFO. And because of that natural tension and the natural tension between operations and finance results in balance. And if the CFO thinks like an operator when she or he should be thinking like a finance person, that balance falls falls out of sync. Uh, and 
I've, I've had to catch myself on that. There have been times when I've, I've gone down the path of how I would normally advocate for a decision and then recognize that that voice of the CFO, Don, who I'm used to working with for five years here, it's like, wait, no, nobody's saying the thing Don would normally say right now. Oh, shoot, we're about to make a bad decision because nobody's saying the thing Don would say. I'm not used to playing that role. I guess I guess I got to channel my, channel my inner Don and say the thing Don would normally say here, which is which is the CFO thing to say. And so, do you have an example of that? Like, I, I don't. You obviously are making proprietary decisions, but like, do you have an example of where those two voices competed in your head, and you had to maybe lean more into the CFO voice? Yeah, uh, great, uh, great question. Um, you know, I would say. A number of the decisions we were making on how to reduce cost during the kind of height of the pandemic, or, or you know, for us in New York, we got really hit March, April, May, and then everything the bottom fell out on the business in you know May, June, July. But COVID was under control in in New York, you know, largely until you know October again, and so we went into kind of turnaround mode, and so we were having these discussions, you know, every day about certain things uh, we needed to do to reduce costs. And some of it was you know, terminating vendors. And normally, I would have been on the side of, well, like we really need to make sure that operations doesn't need this vendor in this way. And you know, they're going to have to resume a relationship with them at some point. And so we can't be too, you know, too harsh about it. And, and that's, that's where my head was going, right? I was thinking, well, you know, who's going to have to Resume work with this vendor. Who's going to have to after after the you know period of time that we're in right now ends? And then I was like, wait, no, actually, finance needs to be you know needs to be pushing more strictly. And then the business will counter and say, well, I can't do that. Can I do this instead? How we were managing workforce, we put in a strict hiring freeze. I've for five years here, I've been the one who always says the hiring freezes shouldn't be as strict. They should be more nuanced. Well. I was the one implementing the strict hiring freeze. And there are always exceptions, and, and we make the exceptions, and that's good. But the negotiation between finance and operations on, on those sorts of things was where I found myself having to actually go back to a different sort of role uh, than, than I naturally wanted to play. What you just said makes me think about psychological safety, which a number of people on this show have talked about. Are you familiar with that term? Only at a high level. Okay. So basically, psychological safety says that everybody in the room feels psychologically safe to share their opinion openly. And, and there's no fear that there's going to be reprisal or punishment or they're going to be made to look foolish or anything like that. And when you're talking about that and you say, you know, well, my role is this, and then the operations person pushes back, maybe. But I think, you know, I've seen plenty of scenarios where finance holds the keys to the cash and can wield a stronger power dynamic than somebody in an operations role or somebody in an HR role. And so there's a weird power dynamic in that room too. And I imagine if you have a, if you have a healthy executive team that is all in it together and trusts each other, then you can duke it out a little bit. You know, somebody can say, no, Neam, that's, you're not understanding the full picture. Here's what I need here. And you go, oh, okay, I appreciate that. Let's meet in the middle. But that creates a, that, that requires a certain environment. And so how do you foster that environment where you can create that healthy tension? 
Yeah, I so I'm very, very fortunate in this organization to be part of an executive team where where we have that. Uh, the the small group of us who kind of drive the the most critical decisions, our chief clinical officer, our chief operating officer, myself, uh, especially you know, to the three of us, we don't go twelve hours without talking to each other, including, you know, weekends and and whatever, but it is we have tremendous trust in each other. And I think a, a big piece of a uh, big piece of it is actually in each of the pairwise relationships. Uh, it's not, you know, group dynamics are are a bit of a sum total and amplified impact of individual dynamics. Uh, and so if in each pairwise uh, relationship, there is that level of trust, you know, I find that it works a little bit better than obviously in a, in a group relationship as well. But one thing that we all share is we all give each other the benefit of the doubt. And so... There's no political maneuvering. We all believe we're doing what we're doing. That we all believe that the perspectives that we are advocating are those that are best for the organization, and we all approach it with some degree of intellectual humility. That I am not going to have thought of everything. It would be crazy for me to have thought of everything. My point of view that I'm expressing is based on everything I've thought of. Part of my taking the CFO's view quote unquote, rather than a different view, was actually training myself to think what are the perspectives that the CFO would have come up with. And some of that came from then, you know, talking to my team, who's been the finance team here for a long time and learning from them. But if I say something and the COO wants to push back, she knows that uh, whatever she espouses, I'm going to listen to because I recognize that I don't know the, some of the things that she knows and, and vice versa. And so I think that that benefit of the doubt, assuming the best intent, you know, it, it makes it sound simple, but I, I think it actually is in some ways, it is rather simple at the top of an organization because there are only a handful of people. And so, you, you know, to create that psychological safety amongst an executive team, okay, you got five people, as long as all five, five of them have a certain point of view on this, you're okay. It's a lot harder as we cascade down through the organization, and by no means would I say we've you know got it all figured out and have the you know have a, a paragon of uh, of psychological safety up and down our organization. Yeah, it's it's a constant struggle to keep that in place. I think was there anything done on purpose to create those relationships, or was that something that happened naturally? I think it's largely happened naturally. Personally, I strive to do it by just spending time with people i find it's it's really hard it's really hard to have that if you don't if you don't know a little bit more about what you know what motivates somebody what they think about if you haven't shared with them what motivates you uh how you think exposure to people i think really helps i i am a big fan of one-on-one interactions to work through difficult things that you know as as you've kind of described the concept of psychological safety I feel like it it plummets in a in a room with ten people because you're worried about what nine other people are thinking about what you're saying, and so if you can you know build that one on one with people, I, I'm a big fan of having one on one discussions with other key leaders that aren't even just to work through tough issues that are just on a regular basis working through whatever's going on. And you build enough trust with somebody where, you know, I, thinking about our COO here, 
there was an issue that somebody on my team and somebody on her team were disagreeing on. And they, those two individuals are both amazing leaders in our organization. And they don't, at the time, actually, now they do, they didn't have much of a relationship with one another. They didn't, they didn't work together much. And everything that any friction point between them was getting routed up to one of us by whichever one reported, you know, they reported to, then over and then back down. And it was this like game of telephone. Sounds productive. Yeah, not productive, right? (laughs) And and it, it clicked for me that the issue was the lack of trust in the relationship or just lack of familiarity. Uh, they had no reason to mistrust each other. It was just lack of familiarity. When something got raised to me by the person on my team and uh, on like a Friday evening, and I was like, I don't want to think about this tonight. And then, you know, I wake up Saturday morning and I had a text from our COO about the same thing because it was raised to her on Friday evening uh, by the person on her team. And I responded, you know, like rolling out of bed at, you know, 6.30 a.m. on a Saturday. I take a look at it. And I didn't even think about how to position my response. I just responded with the first thing that came to mind. She responded back. I responded back, okay, great. And she was like, okay, so we'll, we'll just tell, you know, person X and person Y, you know, on Monday. We resolved it with like four texts back and forth at 6 a.m. on a Saturday morning. And I mean, text is the worst medium to resolve a conflict because it's so <laughs> easy to misread and misunderstand what people are saying. Sure. But we had so much trust in each other that we could do it that way. Yeah. And I was like, oh, wow. Whereas these people on our team, they were having friction even while meeting in person, which is you know the best way to do it. And I realized it's because they didn't have a relationship. And so when, when the four of us got together the next week to work to kind of for us to explain how we were going to do it to our team, I closed the meeting by saying, guys, just, just so you know, our expectation going forward is next time there's an issue like this, the two of you jointly bring it to the two of us. I don't want person A bringing it to me and person B bringing it to her. That's a great you point. Because that's just not a good use of my time. Yeah. I, I, I framed it totally selfishly. Um, <laughs> I, what I meant was it was good for the organization. But I, you know, sometimes it puts an extra burden on something if you, uh, if you also frame it selfishly. I was like, look, it's just not a good use of my time. Why? Why are we doing this? So you guys discuss it, bring it to us jointly. And they work together fantastically now. And they resolve things via, you know, text at 6 a.m. And, you know, but I, I think it, it requires that spending time with each other uh, to, to build that. Yeah. Sometimes it requires going through that crud together too. Yeah. You know, like just getting through some of those battles together, build some relationships. Right. And and build that trust. Yeah. When you When you see how somebody how somebody handles pressure and you see where they are at their best under pressure, where they are at their worst under pressure, it humanizes it. It helps you reflect on where you're best and worst under pressure. And it helps you, you know, the next time that there is some sort of conflict with the same person. Yeah. That's a great example. Thank you. Going back to your role as CFO, you know, in the managing the human dynamics, it's been said on this show a few times, no margin, no mission. And so obviously businesses are in business to turn a profit or at least to break even so that they continue on with their mission and survive another day. I love uh, Simon Sinek's book, uh, The Infinite Game, where he talks about, you know, nobody wins business. You, you win business by being in business the next day and the next year mm-hmm. and the year after that. But you need profit to do that. So when you're making a strategic decision with your CFO hat on, 
how are you managing margin and mission and profit and people? So one benefit I think we have as a not-for-profit is not, I would not say it's that, oh, we don't have to turn a profit uh, because as you said, no margin, no mission. It is that we can have whatever time horizon we want as it relates to our margin and our mission within reason. To illustrate that, think about in, in my prior role, I was talking to the one of the vice chairs of our board uh, who runs a large private equity fund. And so, I mean, he's basically a professional board member, right? He owns a lot of companies or owns large portions of lots of companies through his private equity fund, and he is on those boards and you know influences management that way. And I was explaining the the long haul of the transformation for for population health to him. And he at one point interrupted me and he said, Liam, what you have to understand is I sit on a lot of boards and I uh, take my fiduciary duty very seriously. He said, on those boards, I own the company or my shareholders do of my, of my fund. I have a responsibility to put the right management in place, uh, make sure they're focused on the right thing so I can increase the valuation and generate a financial return for my shareholders. And on my role on the board of Mount Sinai, it's very similar, except the shareholders of the community. And at the time, the institution through which he joined our board had been in business for 165 years. It's our second oldest institution, but that, that was the number in his head. He said, you know, Mount Sinai Hospital has been here for 165 years. My job is to make sure it's for the next, here for the next 165, serving the community. And so... When the shareholder is the community, you can really think about doing everything you can as long as you don't go bankrupt. It's kind of the, that, that was, and that was his message to me. He said, so if, if you're telling me, Niam, that the right answer is population health and value-based care, and that is what positions us best to be here in the community for 165 years, I believe you, go for it. It's fine if it takes 10, 15 years. If it drives negative margin for a period of time before it can drive positive margin, as long as you don't bankrupt the institution, which is important. But I think what, what that allows us to do is think about doing everything we can possibly do within the resources available. It becomes a resources available question rather than a margin. It's not a, oh, I got to generate a 6% margin to pay a you know dividend to the shareholder. It's not even a, I have to generate a 3% margin so that I can put some more money on the balance sheet because I'm not blindly seeking base cash on hand, which uh, unfortunately, I think actually some CFOs do. They blindly seek the metrics. Uh, I'm, I'm not blindly seeking days cash on hand because that's, and my predecessor never did that. Uh, when somebody asks how much cash is enough cash, it's, it's a, it's a ludicrous question. It's arbitrary. Yet days cash on hand is that's, the number for not-for-profit companies in the same way that, you know, uh, earnings per share is for for-profit companies. But it's, it's crazy. Why would you pick an arbitrary number there? The idea is we have the resources available. We have the balance sheet we have. We have other sources of funds in the future. If we have free cash flow, we're adding to that. We are adding to our resources. There will be times where we're spending down our resources and times when we're adding to our resources. But all of the resources belong to the community. All of the resources you know, belong to the mission. And so then it becomes a question of what is the mission? 
so I actually think the margin mission trade-off is relatively easy. Every dollar of margin means more mission. What is the mission trade-off is is actually the challenging thing because there are some aspects of the mission that may cost nothing. They may be break-even. They may generate as much as they uh, use in terms of resources. There may be some that use millions of dollars more than they generate in terms of new resources. Well, how do you trade those off? That, that I think, is, uh, is challenging. How do, how do you think about that? I mean, is that a, a free market will sort itself out and the things that don't generate will go away because they're not as valuable? Oh, or like, yeah. I, I, you know, how do you I, think about I, that? I, yeah, it's um, unfortunately, I'm a, and I'm a big free market guy. Um, unfortunately, the, the challenge we run into there is healthcare is so, has so much inequity in it especially in how it's paid, that if we followed the free market, we would not take Medicaid. But that's actually core to our community mission. A third of the patients we treat are Medicaid because that's, that represents the demography of the communities that we serve. You know, Mount Sinai Hospital is spans two zip codes and two census tracts. Uh, and the zip code that spans what, 10128 and 10029 no two adjacent zip codes in the country have a high, higher income disparity. Wow. On median income. It's almost two and a half X between the zip codes. And uh, the two census tracts, north, the census tract north of the hospital that the northern part of the hospital is in has an average life expectancy of 70. The one south of it has an average life expectancy of 91. I mean, we serve the richest and poorest communities in New York, and wow. we do both of those exceptionally well. And that is core to the mission, uh, and we have to. And so, if we said free market, we would, you know, we would just serve patients who are south of the hospital. Yeah, um, at, which would be crazy. Uh, it would be a, that would be a total abdication of the mission. So, I, I think it's it's actually very challenging to figure out what we what we do to balance that. Probably the best way I can illustrate it. I wish I could take credit for this. This is our CEO, uh, who you know, as I said, is somebody who had fall into the fire. I was in a meeting with him. It was myself, him, uh, the CEO of a very, very large for-profit insurance company who we have a really good relationship with, but you know, one of the big nationals and somebody on, on that guy's team. And we were talking about, about the organizations and you know, the, the CEOs are both brilliant you know, people and sharing some stories. And uh, so Ken, our CEO, when he was introducing the organization, he, you know, rattled off some statistics about the organization. And they said, you know, in, in a good year, we have a 1% margin. And, you know, continue talking. And, and 45 minutes later in the conversation, the other CEO, whose mantra for his organization was all about, you know, really earnings per share, right? It's a big for-profit company. Uh, and he is exceptional at his job and has done, you know, tremendous things with his organization. He said, you know, Dr. Davis, I want to come back to that uh, 1% margin. Is that a long-term plan? <laughs> and uh, and Ken, to his credit, first thing he says is, "Well, you know, uh, through our various institutions, we've been serving our communities for almost 200 years." So he like very quickly dismisses the the long-term plan thing, and he says, "But we we invest in various programs." He rattled off the same sorts of things that I just mentioned about the the richest and poorest communities and what our history and mission was. I mean, our hospital was formed 
it, the original name of the hospital was Hospital for the Jews, and it was because Jewish patients could not be treated at places like Presbyterian Hospital, um, and Jewish doctors could not practice there. Uh, and so it was a hospital built for indigent Jewish patients by Jewish philanthropists so that they could get care because they weren't allowed to get care anywhere else. And so that the history of the organization is caring for the disenfranchised, and which has evolved over various points of time in, in history. And so Ken shares some of that. And he said, uh, you know, so I guess, long story short, uh, would I like a 2% margin? You know, I, I suppose I would. But if I had much more than that, I'd just open up more clinics in East Harlem. And then he paused and he said, you know, I guess it's, I guess it's like your earnings per share, except my shareholders, the community you know, much the same way our, our board vice chair had said. And, uh, and I think that is the, it's for every dollar that we bring in, what is the best use of that against mission? And it's, you know, the, the North Star for us is community care for those who can't get it elsewhere. So this is a question I normally save for the end of these interviews, but I think it's appropriate here, which is what in your mind is the purpose of business? So I, I said before that I'm normally a uh, kind of ruthless free market capitalist. And so I actually, I mean, to give an answer that's going to sound a little bit incongruent with what I was just saying, but I'll, I'll connect them. I, I actually think the purpose, well, maybe it'll sound congruent given that we've talked about it enough. The purpose of business is to deliver value to the shareholder. I, I, I am, I sound very, very different from maybe some of my political leanings by coming out like that strongly as a like almost libertarian on it. But, but within the guardrails of saying who is the shareholder, I think it actually, I think it actually makes sense. And it's to maximize long-term value for the shareholder, right? Long-term value for the long-term shareholder. So if you screw over your employees, you will ultimately fail to generate value for your shareholders because you won't be able to attract and retain good talent. If you don't prioritize your customers over all else, you will not have customers, and therefore you will destroy shareholder value. As a not-for-profit, the shareholder is the community, so we need to generate value for the community. It's actually very simple for us. It's all about it's all about mission. Our, our business is the mission. Um, if we were a for-profit, I would say we should be making the decisions that optimize value for our shareholders. Which again, in today's day and age, seems like an awfully unpopular thing to say, but I, I truly believe that you can't optimize value for your shareholders unless you deliver for your employees and for your customers in a really, really strong and market-leading way. Uh, the organizations that are most successful in uh, in delivering value for their customers, while creating a workplace that their employees thrive in tend to be the ones that generate the most shareholder value too over the long term. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, is that the mistake that we've made collectively is that we saw shareholder value and looked at whatever the next benchmark is in shareholder value and needed to increase it as much as possible to hit that benchmark? I, I think so. I think, I think the blind pursuit of it, I think the short-term nature is a problem also. Quarterly EPS is a bad measure of shareholder value for a for-profit company. Uh, I, I don't know what a better metric would be if I were CFO of a for-profit company. I would dedicate some time and attention to trying to figure it out. Um, but I'm pretty sure it's not quarterly EPS. 
because it causes you to suboptimize decisions. Uh, it, it, you know, then you can, then you can optimize for the short-term shareholder and screw your employees and your customers to, you know, juice out a little bit of uh, extra earnings that quarter or whatever. And so I, I think, and then you can get into the vicious cycle of figuring out how to juice out that extra, you know, dollar of EPS every quarter, every quarter, every quarter. Uh, <laughs> Until your end run. You know, circling the drain. Right. It, yeah. Exactly. And so that, that, you know, and I think there are many companies that do that. So I, I uh, you know, I don't know what the right answer there is. Uh, that would require some systemic rearchitecture of, you know, capital markets. Uh, you know, maybe we would say that nobody should be able to buy uh, stocks that they aren't going to hold for at least five years or something. Crazy idea. But, you know, I, I think there is a, if, if you wanted to maximize long, if you think about maximizing long-term shareholder value, you wouldn't chase blind metrics. Uh, you wouldn't chase short-term blind metrics. So earlier you were talking about margin and you were talking about like maximizing margin and about how like, it's just an arbitrary number right? Like within your organization, like why would you pick an arbitrary number and go after it? And when you talk about maximizing shareholder value, like what is like maximizing is sort of an yeah, arbitrary fair, term okay, too, fair enough. right? So, so like where, where's the balance in your head then between the trade-offs of short-term value, long-term value, and wherever that needs to cap out so that you can continue to provide value for your customers, continue to provide value for your employees, continue to do all the things that you need to do to keep that healthy ecosystem and get return business. Like there's gotta be a trade off there, right? Well, I I think that, uh, again, in, in, in our business, yes. Uh, because, because of the not-for-profit nature, um, because shareholder value is not as easily measurable. For for a for profit, it is measurable, right? What's the market cap, which is in theory the discounted cash flow of all future earnings, through some imperfect market based measurement of what discounted cash flow of future earnings would be. Uh, but in in our world, I, there 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 are there are trade offs regarding how much you know if if we if we want to spend resources to do something that is mission based right now, and it's going to be something that's going to cost us. $10 million. Should we do it now? Should we do it next year instead? Should we wait a year longer? Should we, you know, should we ensure that other parts of our financials are more stable before spending that $10 million? And, and that is, I think that's where my kind of reductionist viewpoint that I've been, you know, espousing here, you know, falls apart, right? And, I, and, and that was about macro principles. The, the reductionist view is more about macro principles. On the ground, the actual trade-offs between various initiatives, I think, are are complicated. I wish we had a great science where we evaluated every possible initiative against, you know, a hundred-point scorecard of the community impact it was going to have, and you know, then rank ordered them based on community impact per dollar spent or something. It's in reality, we know there are certain things we have to do. We know there are certain things we want to do more of because the community has asked us to do it. Would that we had more resources. Um, and we know there are certain things that we can do that deliver great patient value and generate financial returns that allow us to invest more in the things that don't deliver financial returns. And then it becomes really more of a, a strategy question. 
Um, and you know, I'm not the chief strategy officer, so I, I get to punt a little bit on on you know kind of how you how you rank what are the priorities and you know how we think about some of those things. But but I I say that glibly. I am obviously involved in in setting the strategic priorities and evaluating uh, what they should be and setting long term strategy uh, you know plans and capital plans. I think it is you know that that ends up being probably the more the more nuanced and difficult set of decisions on the ground where at least we need some guiding principles and ideally we would adhere to them. And I'm sure we don't always adhere to them perfectly. Uh, but you know, we, we, we have our core set of priorities. We have our overall system strategy. We, you know, don't want to spend resources that are off strategy because if you spend money that's on strategy, it has a greater return either in terms of community impact or in terms of financial return that can be, you know, put back into other community impact because it has, you know, good synergies with other initiatives. But I, I think the at the macro level is probably more where we have that that north star of, you know, if, if we if we started running a you know four five six percent operating margin every year, we we would we would have some really tough conversations with our board. They would say, well, you know, what are you not spending on that you should be? Um, and it's a little bit like you know it when you see it. Yeah. Uh, if if we were just packing cash onto the balance sheet every every month there would be some questions about, okay, well, how, so how are we going to spend that money now? Because we, we really should be spending that money to deliver some value to the community because it doesn't do much value to the community sitting on our balance sheet. You know, it's interesting listening to you talk about this because I had a gentleman on uh, the podcast last summer who was from Kehi Foods, a distribution company here in Illinois, and they are a B corporation. And so they mm. are, they're also an ESOP. So their shareholders are their employees, and they're also a mission-based organization. And so while they, and he was, I think, the first one to come on and say, no mission, no margin, or no margin, no mission. And so, you know, obviously, they want to turn a profit. They want to earn value for their shareholders, their employees, but they're also heavily mission-based as a for-profit organization. And so it's interesting now you're seeing some of these organizations. I think Patagonia is probably the most prominent of those out there um, or the most visible, but that are for-profit, but still starting to work that mission piece into the way that they make their operating decisions. Yeah. And, and I think that's, you know, corporate structure. We think, uh, we often think about corporate structure as a, uh, as a society, we think about corporate structure as a tax status or a as a legal knit done right it's not that at all right the tax structures and the legal knits of corporate structures are the legal framework by which the government is suggesting that we optimize around which corporate structure we choose right it's to create incentives for certain corporate structures it's not the definition of them the corporate structures you know an ESOP that's a B Corp should fundamentally make its most strategic decisions differently than, you know, a Delaware C Corp that's owned by six venture funds. Like it, it, it fundamentally should make its decisions differently. Yeah. That's a good point. Well, so let's, I'm going to latch on to incentives there for a second and I'm going to, I'm going to spin us sideways a little bit of a pivot. So we talked about value-based healthcare and some of your work in transitioning the organization from pay-for-service to value-based. 
and a lot of that is changing incentives, right? And and that there's a lot of change management. There's a lot of incentives that have to be changed. What are the key steps that go into that kind of a massive change at a forty thousand person organization? Because I imagine the principle, like if you can get that right in your position there, like there are some principles there that can apply to other organizations that are trying to change their own incentives to create some kind of different behavior? I think there are some principles that are going to translate. I unfortunately don't think that the principles translate to to more typical behavior change. And I'll explain why. But I, I, they, they do translate to other transformation journeys. And I'm going to, if you'll forgive me for going off a little bit sideways, I'll come right back. Go uh, for it. But, Awesome, thank you. I, I wanted the license from the uh, from the host <laughs> before going there. Uh, Taking so, the path less traveled here. Exactly. Uh, so I said the word transformation, and I uh, that's a word that I think is massively overused, but I use it very deliberately here. It's massively overused in healthcare, especially uh, everything is transformation in healthcare, um, which at least hopefully is a recognition from people that the industry isn't working for for its uh, consumers, for patients, uh, and needs to be transformed, but. To illustrate what I mean by transformation, uh, I would use a an, an analogy. So if it's 1850 and you're running a shipping company and you're taking goods from New York to London, it takes you 15 days to do that. That's about how fast a boat could go across uh, the Atlantic Ocean in 1850. And if a customer comes to you then and says, I want my stuff from New York to London in 10 days, you go back and you say, you know what? I need a faster boat. I need a faster boat. I got to get there in 10 days. I can do it in 15. So you build a you know, faster boat, a steamship. You get there. Another customer comes to you and says, you know what? I got to get there in five days. My stuff needs to get there in five days. Well, okay. I've done this before. I'm going to build a faster boat. Ocean liner, right? We're, we're going to get there, New York to London in five days. Customer comes to you and says, hey, O'Brien, five days? I was thinking five hours. You don't build a faster boat, right? You, you build a plane. You, you say, I'm not in the boat's game. I'm in the plane's game at this point. And faster boat is improvement and improvement is necessary. And most of what we use to, when we think about incentive designs is improvement. We have an objective. We define the objective in a certain way. How fast can I get a boat across the water from New York to London? If I reframe the pro- problem to how fast can I get an item from New York to London, it allows for transformation, right? And I can say, yeah, you know what? It's, it's not a boat anymore. It's a plane. And that, a lot of what we're trying to do in population health is that, actually. There, the system was designed for one outcome. It was designed to treat illness and prevent death. It was designed for sick care. We're saying we need a system that is designed for health care. That's not a couple of tweaks. Yeah. Um, that is that is systemic rearchitecture of the entire healthcare system. It's actually taking uh, components of what exist, reconfiguring them for a different purpose. Right. So we still have physicians. We still have physicians in offices. We still have you know nurses. We still have medical records. We still have a claim system that governs the payments. Uh, you know, so clinical, operational, financial, technological models all still exist. We actually rip apart the components, 
reconstitute them to achieve a different mission. It's called architectural innovation. There's actually a great set of uh, research that came out of Harvard Business School from uh, Professor Henderson back in a decade or two ago um, on architectural innovation. And the idea of taking uh, components that exist for one purpose, putting them together to achieve another purpose, and that that being kind of the foundation for true transformations. So when I say that, it's like when we talk about moving to population health and we want to change incentives, it's not about adding on a little incentive here or there. It's actually about rewiring the entire financial model. And as, a, as an illustration of this, a lot of people think about physician compensation when they think about value-based care. And that, that's necessary, but not sufficient. And I think it's more necessary to take away the, the disincentives we have for good care. Uh, so the fee-for-service payment down to physicians doesn't make sense because the more they do, the more they get paid. If you just pay them a salary, you take away the disincentive. And, and then the fact that they've taken the Hippocratic Oath and you know, got into medicine because they really care about people overrides everything else, and they do really you know, great stuff. And so if you remove the disincentives that works there, that the places where you need real uh, you know, kind of rewiring is our entire P&L structures are set up to reward fee-for-service. Yeah. And it, it's, you know, if you invest in a new resource that is supposed to reduce downstream cost of care by keeping people healthier, where do you put that? Whose P&L do you put that on? You put that on the P&L of the practice that had it before. So now you've had the practice take on more cost only so that it can have less revenue. Well, that doesn't make a ton of sense. And so even if the institution has changed the way it's paid by health plans, how do you wire that down into each P&L in each part of the organization so that uh, the on-the-ground soft incentives, the practice manager who goes to every work and looks at the P&L of the practice and you know, feels pride when that P&L goes well and feels uh, a struggle when the P&L goes poorly, how do you make sure that you give them that incentive? And so we've, we've done a lot of that work. We haven't done all of it. Uh, we have a lot left to do. Uh, we did the physician comp model. We started rewiring practice P&Ls and looking at what those might look like in the future. And now that I'm the CFO, I guess I have a little more control over the overall P&Ls of the organization. And we're going to continue doing that work to, to figure out how to do it differently. But the financial model without the clinical and operating model probably doesn't give us what we need. And so you know, simultaneously, it's building the capabilities then so that the people who have the new incentives can be successful at their job. Uh, it's designing the clinical approaches so that they have the tools that they need. And then it's implementing the technology that they need for a new process and a new workflow uh, so that they can be successful as well. Otherwise, we're just giving them incentives, but none of the tools for the job. So as you're talking there, I'm like, damn, this is a lot of work. And it's... Uh, it is indeed. You know, there, but there's also like a period of time in there where I imagine at the beginning, it's a very exciting proposition to say that we are going to revolutionize healthcare. We're going to take this organization that's been serving our communities for 200 years and we are going to reposition ourselves to deliver better care. And I mean, it's like, it's motivating. You want to get behind that. You want to get working. But I imagine somewhere along that journey, the luster of that vision gets a little dusty and you are grinding it out and you're making decisions and 
the people that those decisions are impacting aren't really liking it. And it just gets, you know, there's like a muck in there that you need to work through. How do you keep your energy through those periods of time? And how do you keep everybody committed and rowing in the right direction through the transformation? Yeah, you you mentioned uh, Simon Sinek before. Start with why. When I got here in that role uh, for the first all staff retreat we did with with my population health team, uh, I had them all read Start With Why, which is still one of my favorite books of all time. And then we actually all started with our why. Of, and it was all framed in the context of this is going to be literally decades of work. And uh, we may not all choose to be part of this work for all of the decades of it, but it is decades of work. And we're going to need a why. We're going to need, and we're going to need to know each other's whys. And all of our whys might be slightly different, but we need a why for Mount Sinai population health. And, and we created a why for Mount Sinai population health and talked about that and, you know, used then all of that to drive our mission, vision, values uh, sort of work for, uh, for our population health enterprise. And, and we come back to it. You know, I, I often say that, you know, this work is going to take a long time and it's going to be hard. But if it weren't hard, it wouldn't be worth doing. Everything easy has already been done. So uh, definitionally, the only work worth doing is hard work. Now, you know, that's fine at the 100,000-foot level. How do we keep people motivated at the ground level? Um, you know, I can tell you the past, past year has been tough. You know, a, a lot of the way to keep people motivated on the ground level is to be, you know, keep a pulse on the, the right key influencers around the organization. You know, there are people who, who's, uh, whose mood has a multiplicative effect. Uh, throughout the organization, you identify those nodes of influence. You're checking in with them. They're checking in with their people. There's a you know, there's a culture that is formed at the that is simultaneously greater than the sum of the individuals, but also kind of the sum of the individuals. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the you hear the saying, you know, uh, emotions are contagious. Yes, that's a that's a great way of putting it. Exactly. So you're trying to you're trying to spread positive emotions and reduce COVID. Yes, exactly. Uh, stay positive and test negative. <laughs> uh, it's but it's been challenging in the time of everybody of more people working remote. Uh, not everybody, but uh, you know, I'm in the office today. But it's hard when we don't have those. Actually, it's so right. We're trying to spread positive emotion and not spread COVID. But m- many of the ways that we use to spread positive emotion in a pre-pandemic world were exactly the types of events that would spread. A, you know, deadly pathogen sure. as well. Yeah. Uh, an all hands meeting, right? <laughs> this is a simple idea of an all hands meeting, uh, which which is a useful tool for certain things. Uh, but you know, lots of in person one on ones, lots of small team meetings. Uh, you know, skip level meetings to check in on how people are feeling about the uh, you know the, the the culture within a part of the organization. Really hard to do all of that in a in a Zoom world. And so, fortunately, hopefully, we'll be on the other side of this soon. But um, it is something I worry about. Uh, you know, quite a bit is, uh, you know, and then we do, you know, all the same sorts of things that I think, you know, people who are smarter than me about this would would talk about on the show around, uh, you know, best practices in terms of employee engagement and thinking about, you know, all those sorts of things and measuring it and trying to intervene appropriately. And I'm, I'm sure there's a lot more we could be doing also. Yeah, I, I think making sure everybody knows that what they're signing up for, this is not uh, this is not working on the you know next launch of you know 
Google's next new service where it's going to be done in 12 months and it may be hard for those 12 months, but you're going to have a cool product that all your friends are using after it. To be involved in this sort of work, you got to be, you got to be thinking about it as this is hard work. It's going to take a long time and it's, it is worth, it is worth dedicating my one career to. Yeah. That is a, that's a noble purpose. When you talk about how hard it's been over these last few months and, uh, you know, you've got healthcare workers on the front lines dealing with, you know, the hardest episodes of COVID here and, and being overwhelmed by it day in and day out without much break. What has your relationship been like, or what has the executive team's relationship been like with the HR human capital leaders within the organization through that period of time? We've, we've worked very, I would say, more closely than ever. Our COO, head of HR, and myself, the three of us talk a lot together as the three of us, um, which I don't know that we would quite as much if it weren't for you know all of this going on. Not that we wouldn't collaborate normally, but there's just so much more interdependency. Yeah, uh, you know every every decision we're making, our our HR team has been fantastic, and you know I mean is we also need to not forget that in addition to being the human capital conscience of the organization, HR is a really big operational shop. Mm. We 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 needed to their work was disrupted massively. We still need to recruit people can't recruit people the same way. We need to change all of our hiring processes. We need to change all of our training curriculum. We rely on in-person training for certain things, for back office functions that are now fully remote. Okay, how do we do that? Yeah. Um, you know, we we did also and I like this is, you know, sounds mundane, but you know, big deal. We we you know, we went live on a new payroll system and new benefits system. We insourced benefits during COVID. And it, like these were all things that were planned. These were multi-year transitions that we were doing. We went we went live with new payroll for half the organization on April 1st last year. We had 1,900 COVID-positive inpatients in our hospital when we went live on a new payroll system. I mean, it was crazy, but it was the date that we had to go live. So like our HR and finance teams had to do that also. So in the middle of, you know, and this is just to give a little shout out to my HR colleagues um, and those at all sorts of other organizations, they run a really key, important operation in addition to everything else they do. Yeah. Um, and their jobs were really impacted here also. Uh, but I, I, you know, I think the the people part on the front lines, man, there was no playbook for this. It was a lot of it, actually. The, the other part of our organization that really stepped up was internal communications, which sits in our marketing communications group. And uh, the guy who heads up internal communications here, I mean, he did a lights out job. And, uh, and it was hard. And it, you know, in an environment where everybody's under tremendous amount of stress, bad things happen, right? You know, some, something is miscommunicated. A policy is set that shouldn't have been set. You know, all that sort of stuff. Again, I'm sure we didn't do as well as we could have. There are other things we could have done better and we've learned. Uh, but I think largely our HR and uh, communications teams working along with our CEO did a, did a really remarkable job on doing the best they could. Uh, given, you know, kind of given the environment and exhibiting some humility and admitting mistakes where we made them, uh, which I think, you know, gained a little bit of, uh, of goodwill. But the, I mean, it's been 10 months of uh, really tough, tough situation for everybody on the front lines. I mean, we lost over 20 employees also. COVID. Wow. 
And, uh, you know, many, many of our employees lost family members. Over 25% of our employees got COVID. Uh, This has been, you know, crazy. And, and, you know, we're getting close to end in sight, you know, uh, over half of our employees, almost half of our employees as of today have been vaccinated. Uh, Everybody on the front lines has been offered the vaccine. And so we're, you know, we're coming out hopefully on the other end of this, but uh, we use the word unprecedented a lot in these past 10 months. So that I, you know, I can't think of a better adjective than that. Yeah. Um, and God, I hope, you know, unique once in a lifetime and those sorts of things apply as well. Cause I don't, I don't really want to go through this again in 20 yeah. years. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be something else. Well, I know that we are getting down to the end of time here. I, I have one more question for you, which is, what have you learned through this period of time that you're going to stick with coming out of this period of time? What What are the lessons that you've learned or the practices that you've put in place that you think are going to be important moving forward? You know, I think the, the most important one, and it actually comes back to something we were talking about before around, around the uh, psychological safety with the, um, you know, within the executive team relates to how we resolve issues, even with people who we don't have as deep, you know, relationships with. And to some extent, out of necessity, especially back in, you know, March, April, May of last year, we we got so operationally nimble. If somebody wasn't consulted on a big decision, they just they just assumed, oh, it must have been an oversight. They'll get me on the next one. Right. Things were decided because we had to make decisions so, so quickly. Uh, it would be, you know, 11 p.m. phone call from the chief clinical officer to the COO. Yeah, okay, let's do this, right? They, they do it. And, you know, at 11.45, one of them's like, oh, shoot, we didn't ask Neom. You know, so one of them quickly calls me. Hey, is it okay that we're doing this? Yeah, yeah, fine. Good, good. You know, I'm dealing with something else. Great. Go for it. You know, um, and, uh, and I think it, it created an environment where we... In our organization, I think we were generally good at this anyways, but better than some others that I've seen. But it created an environment where it wasn't like, oh, well, you know, let's all wait for the Wednesday executive team meeting so that we can discuss it as a group and, you know, waste 45 minutes of everybody's time. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's just like, all right, let's, let's go because we trust each other. And, uh, you know, it'll be fine. And this person's not stepping on my toes if they try to do this thing that touches my area. And, you know, and I'm not stepping on their toes if I go here. And, and so I, I really want to, keep that. I've actually talked to a couple of my colleagues about this as well, of uh, some of the habits we developed of, you know, trying to handle things through a quick five-minute phone call rather than, you know, spending 45 minutes crafting the perfectly worded email or, you know, scheduling the 30-minute meeting that takes two weeks to get on the calendar that creates anxiety for everybody. It's like, whoa, what's this meeting? I don't have the context of this meeting. Is this an ambush about X or Y? It's just like, just pick up the phone and call the person and let's go. Yeah, let's work work it out and let's move on. Yeah, exactly. Because at the end of the day, it's not about us. It's about the patients, right? It's a, that, that's, they are first, everything that we do. Uh, I saw people set aside their egos in a way that I had you know, never really thought would be possible. And that is, that's the thing I most want to, to hold on to you know, personally and as, an, and as an organization. I love that. And, and, I would. I don't know the exact number, but I would bet if I went back, two thirds of the people who've been on this show have talked about the power and importance of humility. 
Like it is, it was actually my biggest takeaway from 2020 in doing these conversations with people was how many people from how many different walks of life talked about the importance of humility as one of the top, if not the top traits that you need to exhibit. Um, so, I mean, and, and here it is, you've, you've said humility specifically uh, several times throughout this conversation. So, it, you know, rears its head again. Well, now we all just need to actually, uh, you know, make sure we live by it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good meditation every day. Just focus on checking your ego. Neam, thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule to talk to me and, and our audience. And I, I think it's great to get your perspective. And I think it's great to have you, somebody who can sit and share what it's like to have your CFO head on, and then also have the additional perspectives and, and work background that you have too. It's just a, a great perspective for everybody listening. So thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a really fun conversation. I look forward to uh, the next time we get to sit down in person, maybe with a, a bottle of wine and some good food and do it again. Sounds great. Looking forward to it. Take care, Brian. Hey, folks, one last thing before you go. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Thanks for coming. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.